So uh, every year, the day or two after Christmas, I begin to feel that familiar feeling and that pressure to decide on a New Year's resolution. You guys can probably uh, understand this too. You probably start getting that like little knot in your stomach. What are you going to do? And to be honest with you, I sort of take the lazy man's approach to it and I just look simply in the mirror and say, it's probably time to lose some weight. So uh, let's be real. If I'm already taking the time to, uh, you know, take the lazy man's approach to choosing my New Year's resolution, it probably won't last too long. But we'll see what happens this year. Please pray for me and then check back in with me next December to see how much weight I've lost. (laughs) New Year's resolutions aren't a new trend, and in fact, they've been around for over 4,000 years. It's crazy to think about. Scholars say the ancient Babylonians started this tradition because they would basically make promises to their gods at the start of each new year that they would pay back their debts and get this, that they would actually return the things that they borrowed to people. Can you imagine that? I think we could actually take a lesson from the Babylonians because I'm sure that if you open up your junk drawer, there's probably a few items that you actually need to return as well. The Romans actually did something similar. They would begin each year by making promises to their god, Janus, who we get the name of the month January from. See, I myself am a planner and I'm a goals guy, so I'm all for setting goals. I'm all for setting resolutions and making decisions for the new year to come. But get this, 30% of all New Year's resolutions are broken before February. And that's according to a poll by time management firm Franklin Covey. And get this, according to a U.S. News uh, poll, approximately 80% of those resolutions fail by the second week of January. That's a steep drop-off. You're talking two weeks with 50 more percent of those resolutions becoming broken. So the odds are very much against us in keeping our New Year's resolutions. And listen, I want to be honest with you. I don't give you these statistics to discourage you from making resolutions. Again, I'm all for that. I think it's healthy. And I think it's great to set real goals that you want to reach. We all aspire, right, to make healthier choices. We want to make good decisions, not only for ourselves, but we have our families in mind when we make these decisions. We want to be healthier, take care of our bodies, uh, steward the resources that God has given us. So we want, to, we want to meet some expectations. We want to live and lead healthier lives. And as December rolls around, millions, if not billions of people all over the world are experiencing transition in their life because they're closing out one chapter, they're closing out the year behind them, and they're opening and starting brand new with the new year in front of them. And with these transitions, it comes stress. You feel pressure, but also you've got great hopes and great expectations for that new year coming up. It's a brand new slate. But I want to ask you a question, and I want to pose this to you. Are we just setting ourselves up for disappointment year after year as we make these New Year's resolutions and then they don't stick? Then we have to deal with that shame and guilt that we feel and those evil eyes from your spouse and your children when you're breaking those resolutions in front of them. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there has to be a better approach to New Year's, and this is the approach. It's all in how we prepare for it. It's all in how we prepare for it. Abraham Lincoln said this about preparation. Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. 
It's good, isn't it? Benjamin Franklin says this, and you're probably familiar with this one. He says, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. By failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. Our approach to 2019 shouldn't just to be and to make a promise to ourselves that we know that we're not gonna keep. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare for the new year in front of us? How do we prepare for the year 2019? And how we prepare for 2019, I believe, will carry us further. So this morning, I'd like to present to you four biblical lessons on preparation from Luke chapter 3. So go ahead and open your Bibles this morning. I'm going to be reading from the and using the ESV translation. Um, the texts will be on the bulletin, and they'll also be on the screens for you as well. So this morning, we're basically going to be spending time looking at the first half of chapter three in, in Luke. And the thing is, is if you, if you have your Bible open right now, you'll actually see that the second half of Luke is a genealogy. And I, I would encourage you maybe in the next week or so to actually read through that because it's amazing. The genealogy of Christ that Luke writes is different from the other gospels because it's actually written backwards. So he starts with Luke and he works all the way down to the son of God, Adam. And it's amazing. So I, I would encourage you to read that. It's just, uh, as we know, Luke is a physician and he takes his time. He's very meticulous in his research. And it's really cool to see. So our first lesson on preparation is that this. Number one, God prepares in his perfect timing. God prepares in his perfect timing. For those of you who have the bulletins, feel free to start filling in those blanks. I'm gonna read verses one and two for this first point. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iture, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. At first glance, you're probably like, what in the world? What is happening right now? Why is there so many fancy names? And why can't Pastor Jason pronounce them any better? This may seem like a long couple of sentences with many difficult names to pronounce because it's true. It's very difficult. But the author, Luke, is super intentional about listing these names. He writes these names for a reason. And he does it for uh, two reasons. Number one, Luke does this to date the appearance of John the Baptist precisely. He's doing this to basically stamp the date on when this is. He lists off one Roman emperor, one governor, three tetrarchs of Palestine, and two high priests in Jerusalem. That kind of sounds like the 12 days of Christmas, doesn't it? Who are we getting here? Luke, being a physician again, is super detailed-oriented. He loves writing, he loves history, and he's a researcher. So Luke takes the time uh, to spell this out for us. Number two, he also does it to show the reader who we learned who the reader is in Luke chapter one. You guys might remember his name. His name is Theophilus. And this is who Luke is writing this gospel to. He shows Theophilus just how far Israel had fallen. The Jews were ruled by foreigners and Annas and Caiaphas had illegally, basically have been thrust illegally into their positions by Roman, author by Roman authorities. And they're constantly using their positions to basically profit for themselves. 
So there is some corruption happening there. So how do we know by this, by verses one and two, how do we know that God's timing is perfect? Well, last week, I remember Pastor David preaching, and he was talking about how the mighty and the powerful Caesar Augustus, he was talking about how Caesar Augustus was the ruler and king over the known world at that time, right? And everyone considered Caesar to be divine. But really, he was just a tool, as Pastor David was talking about, in God's hand and part of God's sovereign plan. And in Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus made a decree, right? He was basically forcing Mary and Joseph to pack their bags to travel from where? From Nazareth to Bethlehem because they were needing to register to pay taxes. So their every move was at the hand of God. God was setting this up. He was basically setting the stage perfectly for this story to unfold. And in the very same way, God organizes the timeline of history here in Luke chapter three, perfectly. A few years ago, Pastor Vicki and I were doing a lot of research. We were spending a lot of time and hours on researching to adopt a puppy. We wanted a dog. And we researched hours for the type of dog breeds and, and landed on a couple that were actually going to meet our needs and preferences. We took into consideration the size of our home. If you have been over to our home, you know it's very small. We don't have a ton of room, so we didn't want a big dog. And so we were taking into consideration our lifestyle, how we would be gone for most of the day and then come back. We also wanted a dog that was hypoallergenic because I deal with a little bit of allergies. And we also wanted this uh, dog to have a good temperament, to be good around people and to be good around children a lot. So while we were in our dog search, a friend of mine from work invited Pastor Vicki and I over for dinner. She basically wanted to connect us with some other young couples uh, that were Christians. And so she set this dinner up for us. But what we didn't know is that she invited her son over and his family, and he turned out to be a Labradoodle breeder. So naturally, for the, almost the whole entire dinner, we were spending the majority of our conversation talking to him about looking for a dog. And he said that he could actually breed and customize a Labradoodle for us, that he could breed a small Labradoodle for us. And he said that uh, he could do this. Um, he says that Labradoodles you know, tended to be a larger breed, and so breeding a smaller one could take some time. Um, he said maybe up to six months to a year, but waiting for this, waiting for our dog was the toughest part. We wanted our little guy soon, but we had to be patient. We had to exercise patience. We knew in God's perfect timing, it would come. And finally the phone rang and it was our breeder friend. And he said that they had found a smaller Labradoodle stud in Washington state and that they could use that with a smaller female that they owned to create our dog. And so our puppy was conceived here in New York thanks to God's gift of FedEx and artificial insemination. I never thought I would actually say that term here from the pulpit, but it's, I have to say it, that's how they do it. And so two months, get this, two months later, our little one was born. And then we had to wait an extra two months because he had to wean off of his mom. And so the extra waiting killed us, but we picked him up and held him in our arms and a lot had to happen. Conditions had to be right. We had to be patient. We had to wait expectantly. But when we did, we were rewarded with Chester. (laughs) 
He is so small in that picture. That's crazy. I don't have a, you guys probably can see on my Facebook pictures of Chester, but that's what he looked like as a puppy. He was eight weeks old at that time. And we are so blessed by him. He's amazing. We love him. But the timing had to be perfect. And God's timing is perfect. Here in Luke chapter three, the political and religious condition of Israel was so corrupt and fallen. So this was the perfect time for the Messiah to be revealed. God's perfect timing of revealing Messiah Jesus. But the conditions had to be right. So Israel had to wait. And so before he could be fully revealed, someone had to be raised up and call the people back to God. And a prophet by the name of John the Baptist had work to do. His work was basically to go before Jesus as a forerunner, right? And prepare and pave the way for the coming of Jesus. The king was on his way. So God uses his precise timing to prepare us to tell his story. He allows our lives to be woven in with each other so that we can be encouraged or even discouraged. He allows all the circumstances of our lives to point us for our need for Jesus. And he prepares us by weaving the strands of our lives together into a beautiful tapestry of his perfect timing and work. And maybe some of you feel like God is maybe late in reconciling a relationship in your life, or maybe he's taking too long to answer one of your long uh, prayed prayers. Everything happens for God's glory. And in this perfect timing, he will let and allow those things to happen. So let's trust God's timing with everything in our lives. God prepares in his perfect timing. Point number two, God prepares and partners with the lowly. God prepares and partners with the lowly. We're gonna read verse two again in Luke chapter three. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So God's way of preparation is using the lowly and humble in heart. Lowly for you guys, at first, when I first heard lowly in the Bible, I'm like, man, like God loves depressed people. Is that what he's saying? No, absolutely not. That doesn't mean, it um, doesn't mean what, it doesn't mean what that says. It doesn't mean sad or depressed. Lowly means humble and living a life of humility. And John the Baptist came from lowly beginnings. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were unable to conceive due to their older age, but God made a way. Zechariah was told by an angel of God that his son, John, would be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah to make a ready a people prepared from the coming of Jesus Christ. And fast forward 30 years now, and this promise is coming true. John is living in the wilderness, and then God's word comes to him. But just a few verses before this, there was quite a list, right? You guys heard me kind of fumble my way through that list of important and prominent people in the eyes of the world. Why didn't the word of God come to those prominent people? Why didn't it come to all of them? If I wanted to communicate an important message to the world, I wouldn't go looking in the backwoods of the wilderness of society to find someone to tell my message, I can tell you that. I would probably look for a well-known public figure, an effective communicator and leader, maybe like a Pastor David, to herald out my message. But the word of God didn't come to someone like that here in Luke 3. And it certainly didn't come to Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Tetrarchs of Or, Annas and Caiaphas. No, the Bible says that it came to John, the son of Zechariah, while he was in the wilderness. 
It came to a relatively unknown man. John was lowly. He was a lowly man. And from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we know that John was a man who wasn't concerned with what he wore or what he ate, right? It doesn't talk about that in John, but we know that he wore what? Camel's hair. And what did he eat? Locusts and wild honey. It's crazy. John wasn't a man concerned with how he looked or what he ate for dinner. And that speaks directly against what most of us kind of live our lives like. But that's who John was. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God saw John as a highly significant, powerful, and integral part of his story of redemption. So what did this lowly, humble, wilderness, wilderness man do that was so special that he was able to be used by God in this way as God's prophet, forerunner, and spokesperson? In Luke chapter one, in verse 80, uh, John's father, Zechariah, kind of sings. I think it's a song, but it's a prophecy as well. And he says this prophecy, and he says this, quote, this is from Zechariah, John's dad. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. The thing that made God, uh, John special was that he was strong in spirit, it says. And how does one become strong in spirit? And I would encourage, uh, I, would, I would say that you're strong in spirit uh, if you're spending time with God, if you're reading his word, if you're in a regular rhythm of that, if you're studying his word, meditating on it, getting in your prayer closet, spending quiet time with Jesus, and you visit with God, you spend time in his presence and prayer with him. And when you make these spiritual disciplines a regular practice in your life, you're basically building up your spirit. You're making your spirit strong. So matter, no matter where you're at in your walk with Jesus, if you're not in a regular rhythm of this, of praying and opening God's word, may I just suggest to you this morning that you start small, basically start reading a few verses a day and spend 30 seconds to a minute every morning just thanking God. Get into a rhythm with it. Make it a regular part of your daily routine. This will make you strong in spirit. Use these spiritual disciplines to condition your heart to trust in Jesus and trust in God's plan for your life and trust in God's plan for uh, the plan of your family as well. And just like how athletes prepare to perform in their games, we need to also prepare by getting strong in spirit by practicing our spiritual disciplines. And God's way of preparation again, there's that word preparation, is by using everyday, lowly average Joes and Janes like you and me. And I wanna ask you something this morning. Do you feel insignificant? Are you feeling like you're not worthy or do you feel like you're lacking value or people aren't thinking of you or you don't have a lot of worth in your life right now? I wanna tell you that's okay, you're in a good spot because John the Baptist probably felt like this as well. But John was a miracle baby. In God's eyes, who was John the Baptist? He was an amazing man. He was conceived miraculously because his parents were too old and were barren. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mom's womb. He was a relative of Jesus. He was at the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophetic history. Essentially, he was the last prophet because God was silent for about 400 years. And John was referenced by Jesus. Check this out. This is amazing. John was referenced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. 
like this. And Jesus says this about John the Baptist, and I quote, he's the greatest man that ever lived up until this time. Jesus said that about John the Baptist, that he's the greatest man that has ever lived up until this time because of this. He was given the greatest responsibility that man had ever had up until that point. He was gonna be welcoming in the Messiah, paving the way to announce the new king. So to encourage your hearts this morning, if you're feeling insignificant, it's okay. Know that God will use you and bring significance and worth and value to your life. Your significance comes from him not anyone else. God uses the humble. God uses those who live a life of humility. So let me close with this point. With the second half of verse 11, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus again, referencing John, this is the same sentence. This is what he says, quote, yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, John. Yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, John. Amazing. So indeed, God prepares and partners with the lowly. Point number three this morning on preparation, God uses repentance to prepare us. God uses repentance to prepare us. This brings us to this point. God used the lowly John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Messiah, but how? We're going to read verses three through six now. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words, Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God uses repentance to prepare us. I love this part of scripture because what we're reading right now, what we just read, was a fulfillment of prophecy 800 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Verses four through six of what we just read was a direct, almost a direct quote of chapter 40 in Isaiah. And we learn from these verses that John is the herald or he's the official messenger bringing news of the Messiah. And what a herald would declare is exactly what John declares here for the Messiah. And it's prophesied that John would basically tell all those around the region of the Jordan, uh, Jordan had a river running through it, and this is where John the Baptist was, to basically make their path straight, to smooth out the rough ways. And basically what he's talking about, you see, in ancient times, the envoy of an arriving king would basically go before the king. The envoy would get ahead of the king. And basically what they're Uh, objective was, was to remove all the obstacles in the paths to make them straight, to smooth out the rough ways. Sometimes they would carve out a path. Sometimes they would build a bridge. Um, Sometimes they would have to build a road. But essentially what they were doing is they wanted to save the energy of the king. They didn't want the king to get tired or wear himself out, including his horses. And so basically they would get in front of the king and say, hey guys, clear this land out, make it flat. The king is coming. But not only that, they would basically go further and go into the towns and villages and the cities there, and they would basically make sure that the town was ready, that the people were ready. They would clean up. They would get the garbage out. They would sweep up. They would clean their houses and their buildings. So for an earthly king, we can see here that you make physical preparations, but for the king of kings, for the Lord of lords, 
for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you make spiritual preparations. So basically what they had to do was prepare their hearts, prepare their lives with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And repentance simply means to deliberately and genuinely turn from sin. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. In order to have their sins forgiven, they needed to first repent. To demonstrate their repentance, they would need to be baptized. And the baptize itself, the baptism itself, didn't bring the forgiveness of sin. It only symbolized their desire for that. So baptism is a symbol of turning from the past and turning towards a new life with God in the future. And so what was repentance? It's basically turning from the pattern of sin in your life in the past and turning towards God in grace. And that's why we call this a baptism of repentance. Those Jews who wanted to repent of their sinful ways and turn towards God symbolized this with a baptism. But it was repentance, right? It was repentance that was key. And so they repented. They turned from their past and they turned towards God. They gained release from sin and essentially and ultimately they gained freedom over sin. And this is what repentance looked like for the Jews who were getting baptized by John. But what does repentance mean for us today? How does that translate? How does a scripture translate to our life here today in this day and age? Well, further down in verse eight, in, uh, in this, John describes to the crowds that he was preaching to basically the relationship between repentance and new behavior. And it says this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he gives them examples of what these fruits are further down in verse 11. This is just a portion of, of what um, the behaviors look like here and the fruit, what it looks like. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Minneapolis pastor and author John Piper explains this particular scripture this way. He says this, quote, this means that repenting is what happens inside of us that leads us to the fruits of new behavior. Repentance is not new deeds, but the inward change that bears the fruit of new deeds. Jesus is demanding that we experience this inward change. So repentance is an inward heart and mind change that now sees Jesus as true and better and more beautiful than all the sin that we find and fill our lives and our hearts with. It's seeing Jesus as worthy of all of our praise and obedience. And this genuine and intentional repentance basically blows apart the idols that we store in our hearts and then cements Jesus right into the center of our hearts as our King of Kings. Charles Spurgeon says this about repentance. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Isn't that good? This doesn't mean that we need to clean up our lives so that God sees that we've stopped certain behaviors to earn his acceptance. It means that I see Jesus as beautiful and the true and better way, so therefore I obey. Repentance is less about feeling bad over uh, behavior and more about feeling awe and delight for Jesus. 
We need to feel that in our hearts. When we're, when we're miraculously changed and we see Jesus is beautiful, all that other stuff, it doesn't mean anything because we're going to see Jesus. We're beholding him and, and we see him and we're running towards him. God uses repentance to prepare us. The last point this morning is that God ultimately prepared by providing Jesus. God ultimately prepared by providing Jesus. So repentance, it basically, now that there's repentance, it leaves us somewhere. It leaves us at the doorway of forgiveness. And the doorway of forgiveness is our sin. And so God promises us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this. He says, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. So God prepares a way for us to be forgiven through repentance and confession, and it's all through Jesus. Creation now has been groaning for thousands of years, crying out for rescue and hope through a Messiah, one who will come and save them. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus now fulfills all of those prophecies, fulfills all those promises that we read of God. And here in Luke chapter three, we see Jesus literally come on the scene as an adult ready to roll up his sleeves and start his ministry. So let's read it starting in verse 15. He says, as the people were in expectation, these are the crowds around John the Baptist as he's preaching. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Verse 18 just said, he preached good news to the people, right? But John here literally just got done talking about how Jesus will clear his threshing floor using imagery, harsh imagery of throwing wheat into the barn, but the chaff into the fire. And I'm sure that didn't sound like good news back then, right? It probably didn't sound good or they didn't receive it well. But here's the thing. It probably didn't sound good today to us just now either, right? But here's the thing. The good news is not good because it's nice. It's good news because it's the truth. Let's jump down to verse, or excuse me. Isn't it true that in our lives, sometimes hearing that truth can be painful? Remember the old adage, the truth hurts? Well, the same thing can be said here. The truth hurts. The truth is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost and that there is a real heaven and that there is a real hell and God has a plan to rescue us and bring us back into a right relationship with him. So now let's jump down to verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came down and rested on him in, in bodily form, God spoke to Jesus and he said this to Jesus. He says, He's my son. In him, I am well pleased. You see, God delights in his son, Jesus, who he provided to us all, all men and all women. And because we are Christ's, God does all for us because 
We are Christ's. So what God ultimately required, he ultimately provided for in Christ. God ultimately prepared by providing Jesus to us. As we come to a close in our message this morning, I'd like for us to reflect on how we're ending 2018. I want you to think about these questions as I kind of recite them off here. What is it that you're grateful for? What is it that you're wishing you could redo? I'd like for us to take a moment with our eyes closed and basically just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in our hearts what it is that you'd like to see happen in 2019, in the new year for you or for a family member, for your children. Could be things like health or relationships. Could be for things like your job or for your finances, for your marriage. But now that you've seen how God prepared for the ministry of Jesus by using John the Baptist, I want to now apply these lessons and go to God in prayer for a few minutes on our own. You guys can feel free to stay in your seats if you'd like, but what we're going to do now is pray over these hopes for 2019, and I'd like us to frame our prayers this morning with these four lessons in mind. Basically, we'll have some prayer points on the screens, and by doing this, I believe that we will prepare to enter 2019 with the right heart attitude, not by making some resolution that'll be broken. But I think we need to take these lessons that God laid out for us in Luke 3 and frame our prayers and our hopes around these things. This is how God prepared for Messiah. This is how God prepared for Jesus to come. So I think it's a good way that we can go into 2019 by using these. The first one is this. Pray for God's perfect timing in your life. Also ask God for a heart that's humble. Number three, is there anything that you need to repent of? I'm talking to myself too. Have you trusted Jesus with your life? That's number four. And as we go to prayer this morning, there'll be some soft worship music that uh, the sound person is gonna play for us. But let's just close our eyes. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to roam our hearts, to search our hearts. And let's go to God in prayer this morning, uh, trusting him with our lives, believing in him. He's going to make all things new in 2019 for your life. Let's go to prayer.